Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf, I am the creator and your host of this podcast, and I'm speaking to you from the outskirts of Austria's lovely capital, Vienna. This is our season four you're listening to, and today we are presenting episode 14 of that season 4. And today, when I say today, I mean Sunday, April 5 in 2020. Our guest on today's show with a lengthy interview will be Christopher McIntosh. And the title of this show is Rosicrucians and Pagans. Well, how are you all doing those days? Thank you for being back here on the show. And thank you also to all of them who are here for the first time with us. Weird times we're living in. Last time already, I spoke a little bit about that. And even though I don't like too much to talk about actual things happening while we're doing this podcast, I don't think we can completely ignore what's going on out there with our uh, present time with the coronavirus and everything. Many of you listeners, I'm sure, are confined to their home. I hope that most of you are also healthy and in good spirits in spite of all that's going on. And to those who might be sick or have other troubles that they have to deal with because of that situation, I wish you all the best and best of luck and health uh, for the near future. Well, one could say on one hand, of course, let's not talk too much about it because we hear about the coronavirus everywhere and at any time. And many of us might have already enough of it and come here also to maybe find a little bit an hour of peace and talk about something else. And we'll do that in a minute. On the other hand, I think we cannot completely ignore what's going on. But uh, our podcast can also be a possibility to break out for an hour and to speak and listen to other things for that time. Anyway, just one little remark about what is going on and the coronavirus. If you want to tell us how you deal with all that, how you feel with it, in an esoteric and occult perspective, I mean, let me know. Let us know. Let the audience know. I might plan for a special, um, maybe a special episode on that, or maybe just from time to time, a little bit of feedback on it here on the presentation entry of the show. Especially, I would be interested in how your personal practice helps you 
uh, or what you do or maybe what's changed in your personal practice, maybe even if your personal practice is also affected by the fact that maybe more people are home all the time and you don't find the calm. Just let us know how you're doing with that. Um, if you have also good ideas that other listeners might want to hear about and might be helped by what you have to say, let me know, let us know, share it with me. And you can do that uh, either on Twitter or on Facebook, of course, as always. But the best way might be to go on the website. There you find a contact form where you can send your messages to me. You can also send me an email, of course, from there to info at thoughthermes.com. Our website is www.thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And if you want to speak to us, well, then you go on that website and you find a special button for a voicemail feedback. You got one minute there to speak. I think it's one minute limit. But you can speak for a minute and tell us what you think. A minute is longer than you think. So let me know how you're doing. Well, while we are talking about the website, yes, go to the website and you find all the episodes with all the show notes there. It's over 50 episodes already by now that you can listen. And you might have some time to catch up with a few episodes you haven't yet heard and which you have missed. So go there and enjoy. Of course, I also have to talk to you about becoming a patron. You know, we really need your support to do this show. And even in those difficult times, your support is very, very much needed. Um, maybe especially in those difficult times. I also have to thank some of you because remember two weeks ago, I told you that we had only eight out of 2,500 weekly downloads, only eight patrons so far. Well, the figure has now doubled. We are at 16 now. And there were also a couple of nice donations that some of you made. So please, if you haven't done yet, go to the website and click on that Patreon button. 16 out of 2,500 is quite, quite low still. I'm grateful for all of you, but I would really be happy if there were a few more of you who decided to become a patron. And if you don't want to become a patron, but just do a one-off donation, that's also possible. You will find a donation button there. Thank you all very much who have already become patron or donated. And thanks to those who will do so in the next few days. I'm looking forward to have you as a patron. By the way, talking about patrons and Patreon, I will establish a few new goodies and new rules for patrons in the very near future, maybe this week or the week after. So stay tuned there and you'll get more benefits when you become a patron now and very soon. And of course, those who are already patron, they will also profit of that. Right, before we go to speak to Christopher McIntosh today, as always, we'll listen to some music. And again, today, there is three pieces of music by one single um, band, I must say, this time. Uh, today, I got music again from somebody that uh, sent me their music. 
in order to play it on this show. And as with Christopher McIntosh, we are also a lot going to talk about uh, paganism, etc. I thought that the music by The Hills and The Rivers, that's the name of the band, that would be a perfect fit for today. The Hills and the Rivers, that's a street folk family band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, United States. And the four oldest siblings of the Hill family are the front of this really wonderful band. Uh, the conception of the band happened in 2013, so already seven years back. They began recording some of Isaac Hill's, the oldest brother's uh, original work, and then they became a multi-generational musical family um, uh, raised by singing hymns uh, around the table at family gatherings. And that's how that musicality and the love for music and also the talent, of course, came from. Right, and now we have already several uh, recordings, several CDs. The new one has just come out quite a few time, um, quite a short time ago, sorry. And you can listen to them on Bandcamp or on Spotify. And of course, you should buy their music also. Um, but um, for today, as I said, I have offered us three pieces to play. And the first, well, I think it's quite a good title for an esoteric podcast like mine. The first is called Jacob's Ladder. So let's go straight away into the music by the hills and the rivers and listen to Jacob's Ladder. Enjoy. Well, rise up, rise up 
bridges along the way on the seven bridges road there are seven histories and seven Their melodies are incredibly unique and endlessly interesting, not to mention reflective of inner truth, poetic, heartfelt, and clever. That's what one reviewer had to say about the music of the hills and the rivers. And uh, today we were listening now and we will continue listening to their music on this show. We just heard their song, Jacob's Ladder. And by the way, they have recently released a new album called The Fool and the Magician. Well, doesn't that remind you, occultists, something? Well, this is not, of course, a coincidence. Right, um, Rosicrucians and Pagans. That is the title of today's show, and that might sound 
weird to a few of you how could you speak at the same time about those two currents well christopher mcintosh who is our guest today he can because he has such a wide and open knowledge and also um, experience with uh, all kinds of subject esoteric um, he was initially he was born in in the uk of scottish descendants but he is a real international person um, he who has worked as a publisher in London. He has worked for the United Nations in New York. He, and then for the UNESCO, another United Nations department in Hamburg. He has traveled throughout the world. And he was also for several years on the faculty of the Center for the Study of Esotericism at Exeter University in the United Kingdom. So he is really somebody who knows his way through esotericism and he is also a practitioner himself. Um, his first books, and that's why the title of this, of this uh, show, this episode, uh, is Rosicrucians and Pagans. His first books were about the Fama Fraternitatis. He did new translations there. He wrote about the Rosicrucians in another book in general. That's called uh, History, Mythology and Rituals of an Esoteric Order and dates back to 1998. Um, the Rose Cross and the Age of Reason is another of his book. And then he also more and more moves in his personal path because he's, as I said, a practitioner into the more um, pagan uh, realms. He uh, likes to work with more um, earthed and natural traditions, let's put it that way. Well, let us speak to him and let him tell us what his practices are, where he gets them from and why he also moved into that. Christopher today lives in Germany, um, in the north of Germany, near the lovely city of Bremen. And that's where I visited him, at least virtually. We are not allowed to visit more than virtually anyway, but that's what we do regularly with the Thought Hermes podcast. So we are used to that. Um, right, Christopher, here we come. Let's go to meet Christopher McIntosh. Here comes the interview. I have the great pleasure to welcome here in front of the microphone of the Thoth Hermes podcast today, Dr. Christopher McIntosh, a writer, historian, translator, and what else, but especially someone who is very much a specialist of the esoteric and occult tradition of the Western tradition in general. We are going to hear much more about that in the next hour. And I have the pleasure to say welcome, Christopher, here with us uh, on the microphone of Thos Hermes. Thank you, Rudolf. A pleasure to be on the show. Well, thank you. Well, Christopher, um, your name, I'm sure, is very well known to many of our audience. Uh, and um, uh, but we have heard, I think, at least I do, so many things from you, so many from so many different fields of the Rosicrucian tradition, of the Norse tradition, of other topics in the esoteric world. So 
Why don't we start a bit further back how it all started? And um, can you let me and our audience know how did Christopher McIntosh become the specialist in that Western esoteric tradition? What was your initial interest? How did it all start? And where do you come from with that? Well, <clears throat> I've had a very long and roundabout journey to get to where I am today. Uh, maybe I should start by saying a bit about my background. Yes, please. Uh, I was <clears throat> born in 1943 in Kent, in Southeast England, to a British father and American mother. But I grew up mostly in Edinburgh in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, where my father was a professor at the university. Um, he was a, a very well-known um, worldwide expert on the English language. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up in a, a very cultured home. I grew up surrounded by books. There are always interesting people coming and going. Uh, so it was a cultured um, environment to grow up in and a very literate environment. Well, eventually I went to Oxford University where I studied philosophy, politics and economics. And then I became friends with a fellow student who got me interested in astrology. Mm -hmm. And um, another friend around the same time got me interested in Alistair Crowley. So that was really when I started to become seriously interested in esoteric things. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, now I have to fast forward a couple of years to when I was already married and working as a journalist in London. And that was when I produced my first book, which was a history of astrology. Right. Called The, the Astrologers and Their Creed. And during the course of writing that book, I came into the came into contact with the wider domain of the esoteric traditions as a whole. And uh, then I went on to write a book uh, about Eliphas Levy, the French magician, and a book on the, the Rosicrucians, and um, then a series of other books. Well, initially I had... Uh, basically more of a, a scholarly interest in these things uh, rather than um, an interest as a, as a believer. Mm -hmm. uh, but over time, I found myself wanting to engage more actively in the things that I was writing about. Well, <clears throat> then there was a shake-up in my private life. My marriage broke up and I moved into a flat in North London. Now, this was around 1978. Now, London was a paradise for anyone interested in esoteric things. And to some extent, it still is. Right. Uh, there were groups of all kinds. There were conferences, meetings in pubs, wonderful bookshops like Watkins and the Atlantis. Atlantis, right. Yes. Um, wonderful libraries. Uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. And in the part of North London where I lived, 
there was um, a particular concentration of occult activity. There, there were two houses in particular in my neighbor, near, near where I lived where all kinds of occult groups were meeting regularly. Pagan groups, Wiccan groups, an OTO group that performed Crowley's Gnostic Mass and um, others that were working more or less in the Golden Dawn tradition. And I attended some of these groups um, one person I got to know at that time was Freya Aeswin, uh, who has since become right. known as an expert on the Nordic tradition and the runes. Absolutely. She's quite, yeah. she's quite a personality, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes, she is. Um, so, um, let's see. Uh, that was, I think, I think um, my, my encounter with um, Freya uh, was the beginning of my interest in the northern pagan tradition. And around the same time, I got to know uh, Hilmar Ern Hilmerson, who is now head of the pagan community in Iceland, the, the Asatru Fellowship. Mm -hmm. um, well, um, I, I got to know both of them around the same time. Um, and I was interested in the Nordic, Nordic tradition, although it was to be some years before I went deep, more deeply into it on a, on a personal level. Well, then moving on a bit, uh, in 1986, I married an American woman and we spent three years in Oxford where I took a doctorate in history focusing on the Rosicrucian movement. Um, the, 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 it was published as the Rose Cross and the Age of Reason. And my wife took a PhD at the Royal College of Art in London. Then we moved to New York with the intention of finding academic positions. But instead, I ended up working for the United Nations, doing, okay. pub yes, doing publications work. Um, well, while there, I had a, a crucial experience. Um, my, my then wife was Jewish, and we used to attend a synagogue uh, close to our building and we became friendly with the, the rabbi of the synagogue mm -hmm. and one evening he was giving a lecture um, and he was talking about the difference between monotheism and polytheism and he said you know what the difference is he said in monotheism everything goes in a straight line towards um, the second coming, the last judgment, um, the earthly paradise, whatever. Whereas in polytheism, in the pagan religions, everything goes in a great circle. And in that, in that moment, I had a flash of realization that I'm a man of the circle and not the straight line. Right. So, so, so that, that was one key moment of revelation for me. And also looking back across the Atlantic from the advantage, the vantage point of New York, look, looking back at Europe, I realized that I'm basically a North European and the gods of North, the gods of Northern Europe are my gods. Uh, so that was another realization Sometimes one has to step back a bit from where one belongs to realize that it is where one belongs. To have a look from distance, right? Yes, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, um, 
then my I, I was in New York for four years, and then my second marriage came unstuck, and I moved back to London. And uh, very soon after that, I found a job in Hamburg with UNESCO. The, the, the UNESCO Institute for Education, as it then was. Mm-hmm. Um, again, doing publications work. Well, then I had another crucial experience. One day I was visiting the, the Frankfurt Book Fair and I ran into an old friend from London days, Frederick Lamond, who had um, been for most, most of his life in the Wicca movement and right. had in fact... Um, worked with the founder, Gerald Gardner, and been a member of his coven. Uh, And he was at the book fair looking for a publisher for a book that he had written about his pagan path called Religion Without Beliefs. Well, then, about a year later, I ran into him again in Prague. Um, He had published the book, and I got a copy from him and read it on the train going back to Hamburg. And by the time I'd finished it, I was convinced that the pagan path was the path for me. Mm-hmm. Well, so then I began to move in pagan circles in Hamburg and uh, to celebrate with them. And through pagan connections, I met the woman who then became my wife, Dr. Donata Panka, who is a scholar of religion and a ritual practitioner. So we have a shared spiritual perspective Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I am now. You now live close to to Hamburg, if if that is if that's correct, right? Well, I, I live in fact in Lilienthal in in mm-hmm. uh, lower, lower Saxony, which right? Is, which is closer to, to Bremen. It's 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 uh, almost a kind of suburb of Bremen, right? But it's um, uh, it's close to very beautiful country, and it's it's like living in a country town, right? Well, beautiful. So, and um, I mean. That path that you just described to us, thank you for that, by the way, because about that openness and clear listing that you gave us, but it's a very, it's a very exciting path. And it's, I would say, rather different from the standard traditional esoteric path when people tell you that at age five, they've had their first experience and in in lucid dreaming or whatever. I'm just, I'm just uh, Hmm. making that up. But often you hear that kind of story and from, they take it from there. You correct me if I uh, am wrong, but you rather started first with the theory and with writing and with discovering Yes, theory. And yes. by that, you became a practitioner. Did I get you right? <clears throat> yes. I, um, I, w- I was obviously fascinated by these things. Otherwise, I wouldn't have started studying Course, them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I felt that the Western esoteric tradition was an important element in Western culture. And at that time... Almost nobody in the academic world was writing about it. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that I had a contribution to make by writing serious books uh, on these traditions. And then, but then, as I said, the more I went into them, the more I felt that I, I wanted to become actively engaged in some way. Right. And and for a time, as, as I said, I was involved in a, a group in North London practicing a kind of 
uh, ritual work in the Golden Dawn tradition, more or less. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I in the long in the long run, I came to feel that I wanted I wanted something. How, how shall how shall I put it? Um, what various things became more important to me over time. And one was the, the importance of, of roots. Right. As, as, as I said, I came to feel, I came to realize that I'm a North European and I wanted to celebrate my roots as a, as a North European. I wanted to, yes, um, uh, I wanted to, to make contact with the, with the North European gods, with the North European mythology and all of that. And uh, so I think, uh, especially after reading Fred, Fred Lamont's book, I felt that that was my path. And mm -hmm. I, was, I, I, was, I was lucky enough to come into contact with people who, who were on that path and um, started celebrating and, and working with them and i had the f the feeling of i had a feeling of homecoming when i when i started working with these people taking part in seasonal rituals and so on i had a a profound feeling of homecoming um which was at a much deeper level than anything i'd i'd felt uh, from the sort of hermetic rosicrucian uh, golden dawn tradition although right. although I, I still have a lot uh, although i still have a lot of respect for those traditions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. interesting um i will come back to that in a minute i i yeah. would like to go a little bit further back in your biography when you were still also writing that book about eliphas levy and yes. the rosicrucians in the first place and so on um you said that that they were more eschatologic, so in more in a linear way, right? Can you expand maybe a little bit on that? Because I find that fascinating when you made that comparison between monotheism and I might, maybe you see that differently, but I, I would almost link those golden dawn traditions and hermetic traditions more to a monotheistic point of view in general yes. also in their own in their own workings that's right as opposed to the pagan which is more as you said in the circle and mm -hmm. so can you can you maybe expand a little bit on that point of view uh, between yes. the yeah. linear and circlish yeah. uh, <clears throat> uh, workings yes absolutely well <clears throat> this is one of the reasons why i'm a pagan mm -hmm. because this linear paradigm that I talked about has, in my view, had very harmful consequences because it's been transferred from the religious realm to the secular realm. It's been transferred, for example, to the realm of economics and um, uh, and um, industrial policy so that mm -hmm. ev every, everything has to everything has to grow the economy has to grow 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 all the time um, it, it's also been transferred to the realm 
of the arts so that in in the realm of the visual arts for example um well i i have to say i'm i have to say i regard most modern art uh, as a complete swindle mm-hmm. and and fraud um what what's happened in the in the visual arts is that this this linear paradigm has led to the the view that that everything everything has to be forward looking and provocative and you're not allowed to refer back to tradition to to um inherited standards of beauty or anything like that um and the same the same has happened in the realm of of architecture this is another another of my bugbears that ar- architecture has to again it has to be forward looking buildings have to be um i modern and iconic and you're not allowed to refer back to to tradition traditional forms and this this is again it's this has had disastrous consequences because our towns and cities are, are just filled with with hideous hideous buildings that nobody wants to be surrounded by um yeah so um that's that's this 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 linear mm-hmm. this linear paradigm I can absolutely understand what you mean uh, and um I, I'm just I'm just I'm not questioning it because I I kind of agree with what you're saying um but when you when you say for example the architectural bit that you just yeah, like, yes, um yeah. we seem to be striving for some kind of perf- call it perfection it's it is not but that's what it's meant to be at least um but uh, in fact it makes it much worse right as yes. you just said um but so where is for those people who are fans of that where is in your point of view the the the, the progress where 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 does it lead to because it must lead to a certain aim which is perfection in the end otherwise what's the why do a linear development i mean i'm completely with you on the on the mm. economic side i see that also the the eternal growth of economy uh, leads us into a terrible situation mm. um mm. but isn't not your theory but the theory of that progress eternal progress isn't it leading into some cul-de-sac at some point well <laughs> yes eventually eventually it will mm. um but um what you see one one person who influenced me a lot was the scottish poet and artist ian hamilton finlay uh, i don't know if he's familiar to you uh, he is yeah yes mm-hmm. well he's he was mainly known for a wonderful garden that he created in the pentland hills near edinburgh mm-hmm. where i i visited him a number of times i was friendly with him for a period of about 30 years or more okay and um he um, he was a very interesting character because he started out as a, an avant-garde artist but he became a kind of radical traditionalist and um he filled his garden with what he called image poems these were inscriptions in stone um sculptures visual puns and 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 so on many of the or most of them in fact 
with some classical theme, ref referring to classical mythology or the classical tradition. Mm -hmm. And um, so what I, what I learned from him basically was that tradition is not something like a chain that weighs you down. It's something valuable. It's, a, it's an accumulation of lessons from the past that um, guide you in the present and help, help you to lead a reasonable life. Mm -hmm. So, so he, was, he was a very important influence on me. And would you, in now if we go back to the ecological aspect of, of that, right? Yeah. Um, would you uh, uh, subscribe to something like what some people call sacred activism in that respect? Would, would that be uh, a word or a tradition, well, tradition, uh, a movement, let's say, that you feel acquainted to? Uh, I certainly feel um, a great respect for the in environmental movement. Mm -hmm. um, my, my own contribution is maybe a bit different. I'm interested in gardening and horticulture, as, as you know, uh, from mm -hmm. my, my book, The well, Good Garden. Books, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, at the moment... I'm trying to practice a kind of mixture of poetry, visual art, and horticulture um, at our, our garden here in, in um, Lower Saxony. Mm -hmm. Because I, I feel that, well, I, I, as I said before, I feel that the, the modern world is lacking in beauty. Partly because of this linear paradigm um, that is that is dominant, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a need to bring beauty back into the world. Well, I, I'm trying to do it in a very small way um, through creating these these works um, a, a bit along the lines of what Ian, Ian Finlay was doing. Right, and um, I also. I'm trying to apply uh, Rudolf Steiner's idea that spirituality should, is not something that should just float in, a, in the ethereal realm, but should actually be brought down into the material realm through the hands. Um, this is something that I, this is something that I, that I, I very much um, agree with. I'm absolutely with you. Where did you, where did you integrate Steiner in your in your thoughts or in your actions? It was that already back in England, or only when you had moved already to Germany? I've I've come into contact with his thinking at various periods. I um, when I was writing my Rosicrucian book, mm, yeah, sure, yeah. He he featured in that book because he was a kind of Rosicrucian. He saw himself as He saw himself as working in that tradition. Mm -hmm. And in my view, he was one of the few people who really applied the Rosicrucian vision because the, the Rosicrucian vision was a, a holistic vision right. which uh, brought together um, art, religion, science, uh, and everything else into, into, into one whole. 
And he applied that. He applied that in, in, in um, so his, his work was not just on the spiritual plane, it was on a very practical plane with his biodynamic agriculture, his eurythmy dance method and the Waldorf schools and the, the homeopathic medicine and, and all of that. Absolutely, definitely, yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's one also. He was a very important figure in my personal development. That's why I also oh, really? I'm interested to hear you on that. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. hmm. um, I have one question for you. When you started with your personal path, your biography, so to speak, yes. you were speaking about your first book, astrology about astrology, and you said literally, astrologers and their creed. Yes, and yes. and then a, a little later, you said I had not yet become. A believer at that point mm. and later you're speaking about the book by Fred Lamont which is called religion about paganism which is called religion without beliefs so I was puzzled by by your choice of words in the beginning creed belief <laughs> and then that's changed um, was that on purpose? Did it happen? But if it happened, it didn't happen without a reason probably so what's what, how well, would you say explain that Well, when people ask me about paganism and say things like, well, how can you believe in all that stuff about the gods? You know, do you, do you really believe that Odin exists and Freya and, and all of that? Mm -hmm. and, um, and what I, what I always say is that paganism is not a religion of belief. It's a, it's a religion of experience that you don't need to believe in the gods because they're there, they're all around us. The gods are, are the great forces in ourselves and in the world, in the universe. And um, I mean, you take, take the force, the force of Eros, which in the Nordic tradition is, is Freya, mm -hmm. but she's all around us. You don't need to believe in her. You experience her the whole time. So that's, that is the, That is the sense of uh, Fred Lamont's title, religion, religion without beliefs. I think. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was I was using the word believer a little bit loosely earlier on. Okay. Okay. Got you. Um, but if those gods are well forces, um, uh, then probably the Greek gods are forces as well, but they are forces as they were seen by the people of Greece at their time, maybe still today, but at the time, yeah. at least at the classical time. And yeah. the Nordic gods are the same, the same archetypal forces, but as they are seen and maybe also given order by the people of the North. Would you agree on that? Um, you, 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 you're, you're making the point that, um, that the gods are local. Are you, is that the point you're making? Yes, I'm trying to, 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 to find out, um, because you earlier said you are a person of the North. Right? Yes. Yes. And that's why that kind of religion or paganism, um, is, is the right thing for you. Yeah, yeah. So in the same way, probably somebody from Greece would say it's about their gods, maybe or not. But that's what that's my question. Basically, is that is that a local phenomenon or is it what is it? What is it to you? 
Well, uh, p- paganism is by its very nature local. Um, not, not all pagans would agree with me about that. Um, some, some would claim that there is a kind of universal paganism. But for me, it's, it's something essentially local, uh, partly because it's bound up with nature. I mean, for example, it doesn't make any sense to, to worship the oak tree <clears throat> if you're living in the desert. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the nature is local and um, the flora and fauna are, li- are, are local um, and so on. Uh, so, uh, the, also, um, o- over time, so, uh, local, local traditions develop. Local um the, the 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 language that you grow up with, the the, the, the local mythology, the the, the local uh, the, the local folk songs, folk dances, all of this, all of this is is rooted in a in a particular place. So, and um, for me, um, the, these things are all are all part of of one whole. I mean, I also I, I live in. I live in North Germany um, in a region where the local language is low German, Plattdeutsch. And so I've, take, I've taken the trouble to learn Plattdeutsch because I, I, okay. think, it's, yeah, I, th- I think it's important to cultivate these things, keep them alive. Sure. I've also um, uh, taken part in a, uh, in a local folk dance group. And uh, all this is for me... It's it's all th- this and um, celebrating the the pagan gods and the seasonal festival. It's it's all part of the same thing. Okay, and here we are as usual, back for a little musical break in the middle of our interview, which will continue in a few moments. After we will have listened again to the hills and the rivers that family band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And their next title we are going to listen to bears the, the title, uh, the name of Temperance. Temperance, something that we could all probably need and use a little bit, especially in those days where being at home all the time drives some of us a bit crazy from time to time. Well, we occultists should be used to it, shouldn't we? To stay a bit alone and work for ourselves. But when you are forced to it, then especially a free spirit like we all seem to have us occultists, we have a bit of trouble with that, don't we? Well, never mind. Now we learn about temperance, the hills and the rivers. Yeah. 
something so discreet as a flame and a shadow. Oh, my heart, let me go. Oh, my head, don't wait until I'm dead to feed me the sweet bread of letting go. the rivers performing temperance i find that music really lovely and really like what they do so look forward to a third piece of music by the hills and the rivers right after the second part of my interview with christopher mcintosh which we will now return to in one second um we especially gonna talk about more aspects of paganism now, especially about the northern traditions, which recently 
where the subject of a new book that Christopher released about uh, six or eight months ago. And um, he has a lot to say about that, of course, as well. And that's what we're going to hear about now. Okay, so now it's up to Christopher to talk to us again. And after that, the third song of the hills and the rivers that we are going to hear is called Nothing Doing, Nothing Doing. Right, but first we do something. We meet Christopher McIntosh again. You cannot uh, worship the oak tree if you live in the desert uh, with you, but the force that might be represented by the oak tree in northern paganism still is a vital force that exists in the desert, maybe, but in, in a different expression, right? Yes, yes, you could say that. Yeah. And so are there archetypal god figures godheads to for you which become different shapes and names but basically are the same or is the difference more than that um, well i think there are universal archetypes mm. definitely there are, there are probably universal archetypes and and local archetypes i think one example of a, a universal archetype would be the trickster figure who appears in most mythologies. Yes. In the Nordic tradition, it's Loki. Loki, yes. Mm -hmm. In the um, Egyptian tradition, it would be Set. Right. And there are equivalents in, in other traditions of this, mm. of this trickster figure. So that would be a universal archetype. Right. And... I, I find that wherever I wherever I go in the world, I feel I find I find a commonality with with other pagans, mm -hmm. because we, uh, for for one thing, we don't uh, we don't need to convert each other. We can we can respect each other's traditions, and um, so I, I have a great. Um, feel a great feeling of respect for the North American, the North American uh, native Native American shaman, the the, mm -hmm. the, the voodoo practitioner, the, the African sangoma. Um, I've got a great respect for all of these uh, these people, yeah. and uh, um, yeah, as I say, I feel I feel something in common with them. Oh sure, sure. Um could you give a definition, your definition? Uh, there is probably no such a thing as a universal definition of that word, but could you give a personal definition of pagan or paganism? What it, how would you define it? Well, first, first of all, it's polytheistic. This is, yes. this, this is to me one of its essential characteristics. Sure. I, again, some of my pagan friends might disagree, but to me it's... Really? Mm. I, I have never come across a pagan or a paganism that would not be polytheistic. I'm absolutely with you on that. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's polytheistic. And um, mm. th this is um, something very interesting. I think this is... One of the reasons why paganism is a growing religion 
it's um, there is a great deal of interest in paganism among psychologists and philosophers, and there's some very interesting things being written. I mean, for example, the the American psychologist James Hillman, uh, the late James Hillman, was a sort of pagan. Uh, he's written a very interesting book called Re-Envisioning Psychology, in which he has an apology for paganism. And his argument is that human beings are are complex. The, 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 human, the human mind is complex and many faceted. Each, each human being is, in fact, many people under one roof. Hmm. So a, a worldview or a religion that has many gods is much more suited um, to understanding the, the human psyche than, than, a, than a monotheistic religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, he quotes in, um, came across a lecture recently by Hillman in which he quotes a remark by Joseph Campbell, who said, the gods are not dead. The gods are alive and standing on the corner of Broadway and 42nd Street, waiting for the lights to change. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point of view, yeah. <laughs> yes, well, actually, I think that they're no longer waiting. I think they've already crossed over. Crossed over, okay. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. But, you know, it's also ritual, ritual, uh, for example, a Masonic ritual or other rituals where there are several officers or actors of that ritual yeah. often is also described exactly like you were just saying um, that those different officers represent each one facet of the human yeah. being who is the initiate mm. and mm. therefore the initiate um, will recognize him or herself mm. in that ritual because it's like a split up in those different in yes. those different parts. Yeah. So that, yes. that's very much in correspondence with what you were saying. Yes. I'm sure. I'm sure you have read the the, the books by or partly of the books by Jan Asman. Um, I must confess I haven't, no. Okay, that's, you should yeah. read the one where he talks about uh, monotheism, about the mosaic religion, because oh, yes. what he says there is that, in fact, it was monotheism who created religious war, because yes. polytheisms yes. or paganism would never be able to um, have that problem. Because you were just saying you always understand yourself very nicely with other pagans, even if yes. they're in other parts of the world, mm. you, you have the same basic creed. Yes, um, yes, yes. And, and he makes exactly that statement. And he said, when, when the Egyptians uh, occupied uh, uh, the Babylonian empire, they would just assimilate their gods and integrate them into their, into their um, pantheon. So yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. That's right. So so I think you would you would agree with that book, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned you mentioned ritual. Well, a ritual is um, is is also something important for me, mm -hmm. um, because for me the re the reason why ritual is effective 
is because the the deeper levels of the, the human soul are more closely connected to the body than they are to the conscious mind, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is why when you, you have a, a shock or a surprise, your body reacts before your mind does. Sure. So the way, one of the ways to reach those deeper levels is, is through ritual, ge- um, gesture, sound, and, and movement, and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All sensual experiences, so to yeah. speak. Yes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very true, very true. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to, to the UK, where you originate from, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you have uh, an explanation for the fact that in the UK at a certain time, late 19th century, and all that that created was exactly what then later in, in, the, in the second half of the 20th century you experienced personally, um, mm. all came together suddenly and all grew out of the United Kingdom at that point, be it Madame Blavatsky who created, mm-hmm. of course she was in India, but she originated somehow from there and her group originated yeah. from there. Um, the Golden Dawn tradition, of course, originates in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yes. Even masonry a bit earlier uh, yeah. comes out of the UK. Um, today, When I do this podcast, of course, I am here in Austria and I always try to underline that this alchemical and um, uh, Rosicrucian tradition, they came out of, of my part of the world party, but also them, they are now basically rooted in the Anglo-Saxon world. Why yes, do you yes. think is that? What, what's so special about the UK and uh, at that time that, that it attracted all at the same time? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure that I can answer it. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, 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 it's, a con- it, it, it's a constellation of things that somehow came together in, in England at that time. Um, I think it it may have had something to do with the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that England was a refuge for um, it was a, it was a religiously tolerant place, and it was a refuge for people like, for example, Comenius, the um, mm-hmm. the Bohemian. Um, educationist who was um, yeah. involved with the, the early Rosicrucian movement mm-hmm. uh, who went to England, took refuge in England and a, n- a number of other people took refuge in, in, in England. Um, Samuel Hartlib, the um, Prussian philosopher, um, or a, num- a number of other people Uh, who were part of that um, Rosicrucian, uh, Rosicrucian continental esoteric tradition who went to England. Um, I think that I think that's part of it, the, the tradition of religious tolerance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, here again, we are a bit in the same situation uh, that monotheism allows something else, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what? Um, but, but do you think that the strong, the strongly rooted um, own tradition that exists in the UK, I talk about the Arthurian, the, the whole Arthurian background, for example, the Grail background yes. and all that. Does that, do you think, does that play a role that, that these roots are so strong that they might have allowed other things to appear at a certain point? Yes, I think there may be, there may be some overlap there when you think of the the pre-Raphaelites who often painted Arthurian themes like like Burne Jones who painted the, those wonderful pictures of um, um, knights and um, the grail and, and yes. uh, all, all of that um, and that was at the same time as the um At the same time as the, the Golden Dawn came into being. True. Uh, I think it, it all helped to create um, an atmosphere that was conducive to those things. I think the, the scientific revolution may, may have also had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, because the, the early scientists like Newton were very much involved in esoteric things, esoteric ideas. Yeah. Or floods or people like him. Flood, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that that sounds that sounds logical. Um so now but taking it from the UK, that's why also I aimed for that question. And now that you live in the north of Germany, um if I understood you well, your pagan occupation already started at the time when you were still in the UK or did I get yes. this wrong? Yeah, well, so. um, it's, well, uh, it, the intro, the, you could say that the, the, the seed was planted when I was in the UK, but I didn't right. really be, I didn't really become active until I'd moved to Germany. Yeah. But would you, would you see between the Nordic practice in Germany and the Nordic practice in the UK, would you see a major difference there or is that basically the same across both countries? I would say it's, it's pretty similar. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty similar. Yeah. So the influence, the, the, the historical influence into the UK was very strong from the North, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the, um, The, the, when when the Nordic pagan movement was started in Germany, it was it was um, a, a trans, transplant from England, so to speak. It was a, an English group that was uh, transferred to, to Germany and, and started in Germany. Which is interesting because you might assume the contrary, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, you might, yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but probably the, 19th, the 20th century has has um, changed that a little bit, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so, there, yeah. There, was, there was some survival of the old, old um, <clears throat> pre-war Germanic groups, but um, yeah. basically, basically it was an English group that um, um, stimulated the current revival. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Definitely. Mm. So you, uh, Christopher McIntosh, you are a kind of a renaissance man to me because you, you, you're not only a writer or a journalist and you work at the UN and stuff. You are a poet. You are, a, uh, you, you like visual arts. You are a horticulturist, as you just said. Um, so let's go a bit into the books and in the, in the books, of course, that uh, represent here the Western esoteric tradition. Um, before we come to the latest book that you that you published which is ab about about the northern tradition exactly can you give us a quick overview about your your uh, rosicrucian books maybe and the life of slavery book just to say a bit what they are about and what inspired you to write them and and what people who get them would expect there mm. <clears throat> well i during the course of writing my book on astrology I kept on coming across Eliphas Levy mm -hmm. and I realized that he was an important figure and there was no biography of him in English. Right. And so I suggested to my then publisher that I should write one uh, and he said it would be better to write a sort of overview of the French occult tradition from, say, around the late 18th century, mm. including Eliphas Levy. So that's what I did, in fact. So I start around the, the, the French Revolution, just before the French Revolution. And I, I go on up to about the First World War. And Eliphas Levy is the, the main focus of it. So uh, since, since then, there have been some other books uh, about the French occult revival and Levy. But when approximately did that your book appear? Uh, 1972. Right. So it's already quite some time back indeed. But it's, yeah. still, it's still available. I mean, you can. Yes, it's, it's been republished it. by the State University of New York Press. Absol yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, Which so, is a good sign. <laughs> yes. So Le Levy was an important figure very seminal figure mm -hmm. and he had a very big influence outside France on on Madame Blavatsky for instance and the yeah. Theosophical Movement and all sorts of people Golden Dawn um, yeah his influence outside France as you point out is probably much stronger than inside France herself it could be yes could yeah be. Mm -hmm. And and then you you started writing about the Rosicrucians. I think you did first the translation of the Fama Fraternitatis, didn't you? Uh, no, that came much later. The, the much later. Okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, I. So again, what was the what was the first book about Rosicrucians then that you wrote? Well, well, again, I kept on coming across references to Rosicrucianism, mm -hmm. and I realized that it was an important phenomenon. And again, there was no decent history of Rosicrucianism. So I decided to write one. That was the book that came, it was originally called The Rosic Cross Unveiled, and then it was republished as The Rosicrucians. It's, it's been through several editions. Right. And yeah, so um, that um, was a very fascinating book to write. And The Rosicrucian movement is obviously a 
very, very important phenomenon with that's had all kinds of re repercussions. It's in, has influenced, as as I said, Steiner. It, um, Absolutely, it, yeah. Um, it, that any any number of movements today calling themselves Rosicrucian, and um, so you find it everywhere. So I think my my book performed a useful service in setting it setting it in its historical context. Right, right. And then there later, another book. Uh, yeah, sorry, uh, go ahead. Well, then, then, then later on, when I came to do my doctorate, I decided again to focus on the Rosicrucians, but on the neo-Rosicrucian movement of the 18th century, mm -hmm. which was which was bound up with the Counter Enlightenment. Right. So um, that, that and, and was placed a very heavy emphasis on on alchemy, which the earlier Rosicrucians had not done. Not done. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was uh, that was my second book on the Rosicrucians. This is another word Rosicrucianism is, in fact, very hard to define, just like paganism, because it's yes. been used in so many different um, definitions across across the centuries. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. And and then uh, I want to point out another book. Maybe you didn't even mention it, but I find I have it, and I find it a very very fun book, The Devil's Bookshelf. Oh yes, yes. yeah, yeah. Can, can you just say a few words about that? I, I think it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, well, um, that was that was a suggestion of my then publisher. Mm -hmm. um, the. Um, Thor Thorson's, uh, this Thorson's publishers, which was a very um, well-known es mm -hmm. esoteric imprint in England, mm -hmm. uh, with a, a sub-imprint called the Aquarian Press. Right, and they they suggested to me that I should write a book on grimoires. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was that was how the that was how I came to write that book. Yeah, I think it's real, a real fun, entertaining, but at the same time, very full of interesting information and, and ah. really can only, if it's still around, I don't know, it's probably only in antiquarian editions, but yes, it's really... It's, it's not, in, not in print, but you can get it on the antiquarian market. Uh, right, it's really, I could only suggest people to get that. Personally, I really like it. All right, and then, well, the, the latest book um, uh, that you that you uh, published is Beyond the North Wind, right? And has the yes. subtitle, The Fall and Rise of the Mystic North. So maybe yeah. you can say a few, a few things about that one. Yes, well, you see, when I was going to school back in the 1950s and 60s, the version of history we were taught was that civilization essentially spread from the south to the north. Mm. So we were told that it all started around the region that is now Iraq and then went via the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and further and further north until all of Europe was civilized. Mm -hmm. And the final, uh, the final uh, crucial step was the conversion to Christianity. And since then, we've never looked back sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the, um, 
the early inhabitants of Northern Europe tended to be looked down upon as primitive barbarians with no culture to speak of. Um, I remember at school, the only thing, the only thing that I remember being told about the ancient Britons was that they dyed their skins blue with a substance called woad. So, so I used to imagine these mysterious blue skinned figures moving through the misty forests of Britain, ancient Britain, <laughs> and occasionally grunting to each other in some primitive language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we now know that this picture is completely false. Um, when you look at something like Stonehenge, the technology required to build that, um, and uh, thing, uh, other other megalithic monuments like the Callanish stones in the Hebrides. There are many, many of these monuments that go back long before the pyramid, long before the pyramids even. So obviously there was a, a highly developed civilization in Northern Europe long before the Romans even existed. Right. So, so, so this, this picture that we were given was completely false. Well, things, things are beginning to change a bit. And um, we begin through the, through the discoveries of archaeology. We're, we're beginning to realize that there was a civilization in northern Europe, an ancient civilization. And um, today we're seeing a, an interesting resurgence of interest in the north. When when you think of the number of films. Uh, computer games, comics, and so on, uh, novels, um, on on the non-Nordic themes, the number of, uh, it seems like every other week, a new film comes about, comes out about Thor and the Nordic gods and Beowulf or or whatever. Um, And so I, I felt that the, the time was ripe to look at this theme of the North and um, to um, examine examine where it where it comes from and the the, the various repercussions that it's had. Oh, it's, my book, the book is is really you could say it's it's about the idea of the North the idea of the North and um, the influence that that idea has had. And uh, it goes right back to the ancient Greeks when um, there was a Greek mariner called Pythias who set out, sailed out into the Mediterranean and up into the North. And he discovered a land uh, which the Greeks, uh, which the Greeks called Tula or Thula, Thule, yeah. Thule, uh, which may have been Iceland, we we don't know exactly, but it, he describes it as as a land of of ice and fog. So this may have been uh, it may have been Iceland, but this report of Pythias um, set off a whole fascination with this this theme of this northern land. Um, it was it it was also ref, referred to by the, the name Hyperborea, meaning the land beyond the north wind. Yeah, the north. Yeah. H- hence the title of my book. Mm-hmm. And this notion of Hyperborea, 
the notion that there was uh, at one time long ago, before the, the Arctic region became covered by ice, an advanced civilization, rather, rather like the idea of Atlantis. Um, in, in fact, um, Atlantis and Hyperborea have sometimes been identified as the same place by, by certain people. So um, I, I became very fascinated by this whole legend of Hyperborea. Mm -hmm. And um, so the, 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 that's what the book is about, really. Right. No, I've, of course, read that book and I find it really interesting and very, very suggestible book for us to read. So I really, mm. you people, you should get it and, and, and read it. It's really fascinating. Look at it. Um, talking about the, the, the evolution of the, of the, the myth of the North, so to speak. Mm. Um, of course, here again, what happened in the middle of the 20th century has done a lot of damage to those ideas because uh, to some extent they became abused and, 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 um, misused, and yeah. misused. Yes. And, and, uh, therefore nowadays it's often hard to speak about that even until mm. today. Um, because immediately those, those things come to mind. Uh, have you made those experiences as well? Or is that, is that something that's in your point of view has been overcome now or? Well, I, I've dealt with that theme very, very frankly in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, There, there are um, these associations, as you say. Um, I, I, I refer to them as, as dragons in the manner of those old maps where those would be in one and corner a little, a little fire-breathing monster, and it would say, "Here mm -hmm. be dragons." So yes. um, I, I, I'm quite frank about the fact that there are a few dragons lurking about, mm. but um, that shouldn't. Um, uh, shouldn't uh, join this our, our image or, or our yes our yeah. uh, our view yeah, of, no, this, I, of this uh, this subject absolutely no, yeah I agree I agree now Christopher we are coming sl uh, slowly to the end of our talk what mm. I have two questions pointed to the future for you. Mm. First is personal. Um, are there any, are there any plans about new books that you would like to tell us about any, any other plans that you, in regards to what we were talking he here today, um, that you would like to tell our audience about? Well, I'm, I'm looking around for, um, subjects for another book. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm concentrating on my um, my gardening work, the the uh, the objects that I'm creating for the garden. But um, I, I will return to writing books. Um, I would I I would like to write some more fiction. Uh, my my fiction is um, Im important to me. You're absolutely right. We didn't even mention that yet. Good that you speak about it. And because there's also, when I think about the sorceress of Agartha, for example, they're, they're really very mythical books as well, right? Yes. Yes, they are. They, they're, um, they're all sort of about the inter interface between myth and reality, which is... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so uh, so we should look out for fictional books by your by you in the near future. Is that right? Uh, well, I, I'm not I'm not sure how near a future, but uh, 
okay. um, fairly, fairly near, hopefully. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, the other question regarding the future is more is more a broader question. We have been speaking about paganism, about how it came into your life, and a little bit about the history and the definition. But what? Where do you see? paganism stand today and what do you think will be happening to it in the near and not so near future what's the outlook on paganism from your experience and from your point of view well that's a, it's a good question it's i don't think it's ever going to be um established as a as a mass religion I think that's unlikely because um, it, it well it it has both both advantages and disadvantages. The, the 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 polytheistic aspect has has both advantages and disadvantages, um, and the the disadvantage is that it's impossible in paganism to create um, something like a confession. A, 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 mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a statement l like the um, what, what's it called in in Catholicism? The um, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, the confession of faith. I think it's the called the confession of faith. It's, it it right. would be impossible to create something like that in paganism, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. um, because by its very nature, it's it's diverse. Um, so, I don't think it's ever going to take over as as the the religion of humankind but um, is it un, is it anarchist and anarchic by definition do you think uh, well you, you you could well no it's not exactly anarchic mm. um because it has its own structure and an order right uh, within each within each pagan group mm. but um i think i think what what will happen is that There will be more and more people. There'll be more and more people practicing paganism, and um, I hope that this will lead to. Um, well, I think I, I hope that it will, for example, have an impact on environmental policy. Um, it could have an have an impact in in psychology, for example. I mentioned. Um, James Hillman, mm -hmm. it, it could could have an imp an impact culturally. It could have an impact in all sorts of ways. Um, so I think it will be, I think it will be an influence. I think it'll be a growing influence in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's a a good well, final sentence, I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Christopher, thank you so much for your time today. This was oh, yeah. very interesting and, and uh, very um, refreshing talk for me. I, I, I'm sure that our audience also enjoyed your points of view, your thoughts, and thank you also for your personal stories that you gave to us. Today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, um, I wish you all the best for you, for your wife, for your garden, and well, for all the projects, including books, I hope, that will that will be uh, in, in the pocket for us in the near future. Mm. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Rudolf. With pleasure. Bye now. Mm. Goodbye.
soul yearning stays the same Try and try all my mind When I go to sleep at night Will I wake up at dawn Or will I see another morn song by the hills and the rivers a family band from pittsburgh pennsylvania who were our musical guests today on this show who have offered us those three pieces that we played today for this show thank you the hills and rivers and i think we'll hear more music by them in the future on this show and i hope you liked it and well, we coming back also from our interview with Christopher McIntosh. Uh, thank you also, Christopher, for your time and for your insight, for talking to us about your experience and your thoughts. It was great to meet you. And I hope all of you, you really enjoyed to be in his company for the last hour and a bit. Right. That was episode 14 of this season four. Isn't time flying? It's amazing. Next week is already Easter Sunday, believe it or not. Yeah, and on Easter Sunday, I have a special, a really special treat for you because my guest on next week's show will be, I think, somebody really special, Patricia McCormack. Patricia, she is Dr. Patricia McCormack, actually. She is professor at the of continental philosophy at the Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, UK. And she is also a practitioner of the occult arts. She is very outspoken about that. And 
sometimes some people in the academic world don't always like that. Um, but um, she is a great personality and I'm very much looking forward to presenting my interview with her to you next week. This, I think, will be a treat for all of us. Um, she recently released a book called The A-Human Manifesto. with the subtitle Activism for the End of the Anthropocene. So um, it's in that context that she gives us her expert justification for the a-human, which should be an alternative to the post-human thought. Sounds exciting, sounds interesting, and I promise to you, it will be. So, thank you for being with the Thought Hermes podcast this week and today, but do not miss next week's show either, and come back and come back often. It's always lovely to have you here. And I really enjoy so much doing that show for you. Go to the website to find all the information that you need about the hills and the rivers, where to find their music, where to buy their music also. Go also on the website to find links to Christopher McIntosh's um, books and talks. And, well, come back next week and listen to me, yours truly, Rudolf, and to... Patricia McCormack, you won't regret it. Right, but for now, what shall I tell you? Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. <laughs>